0: You are listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 5th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist in association with UBS. Live from London, this is the globalist I am Marcus Hippi coming up. Following unprecedented protests against the zero COVID policy in China, we'll find out how authorities have boosted online censorship and surveillance of the population. The United Nations fly ambassadors for a meet and greet with leaders of the Taliban in Afghanistan to hold a direct exchange of views. We ask how meaningful this moment can really be. And a bit later on, we take a look at Monocle's annual soft power survey, which this year includes Ukraine for the very first time.
1: At a time when hard power is being used so aggressively and forcefully to try and achieve a state's aims, we looked again at what the meaning of soft power is and and why actually we're making the case that soft power in the long term and in the short term is the best way for a country to achieve its aims. That is all ahead on the
0: globalist play from London. (laughs) First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Belgium begins proceedings today in its largest ever trial to determine whether 10 men played a part in the Islamist suicide bombings in Brussels in 2016 that killed 32 people. Donald Trump has been condemned by the White House after he called for the termination of the US Constitution, and the New Zealand government will launch a public inquiry into the country's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic so future governments could learn from the experience. Stay tuned to Monocle24 throughout the day for more on those stories, but first... In China, unprecedented protests against the country's zero Covid policy have prompted officials to boost online censorship and surveillance of the population. For more, I'm joined by David Schlesinger, who is an independent advisor and commentator on media journalism in China. Good morning, David. Good morning, Marcus. So if we look at what's been changing since the protests began, how much stricter is the censorship and surveillance in China at the moment?
2: Well, the censors have put in new rules they've put out. uh, They've told all online and social media companies to step up their moderation uh, and especially to crack down on VPNs. VPNs, of course, uh, they're the software that allow someone in the UK to pretend they're in Italy to watch Italian television or someone in China to pretend they're in New York and get onto Twitter. And so they've tried to crack down on that. But you have to feel for the censors because what really is sensitive information? At this point, one of the key triggers for these protests was actually footage of the World Cup when Chinese people saw spectators at the World Cup without masks, yelling at the top of their lungs, looking as though things were normal. And yes, things are normal for people in Qatar or people perhaps here, but not for people in China. And so that shot of the World Cup was actually one of the key triggers. And so Yes, they tried to censor that. They, if you watch the World Cup in China, they were cutting away from tra- crowd scenes. But that's all a bit clumsy. And of course, the protesters use things like blank sheets of paper to protest against censorship. Can you p- censor a blank piece of paper? Well, some stores tried. Apparently, it's, it's hard to buy a ream of A4 blank paper now uh, for national security reasons. But obviously, that's not something that is uh, sustainable. So you have to feel for the censors. They're trying, but it's a very difficult task.
0: What is the aim of the cur- cur- current approach, the, the current internet censorship law?
2: Well, China's really trying to play a very... St- tricky game. They want to cut down on the protests. They want to clamp down on the protests. They don't want disorder. While at the same time, they are actually doing some of the things that the protesters wanted. They are actually liberalizing or appear to be liberalizing some of the COVID rules. So it's a, it's a double game. Don't protest, but we hear you. Don't mess up our social but we're listening. So it's, uh, this this is the message. We're a government that listens, but we do not accept any form of protest or uh, disruption. What do you think
0: is, is going to be happening next when it comes to China's COVID approach? Do you think these protests are actually changing something?
2: The protests changed something, but more importantly, I think, is really that the economy is changing something. Uh, China is in the midst of a very bad slump. The cities that were under lockdown most recently account for something like a quarter of Chinese Uh, GDP. So it's really hurting the economy. Uh, There was news at the weekend that Apple wants to move rapidly away from using China as its workshop for the world and start building iPhones in Vietnam uh, or India instead. And at the same time, Xi Jinping is seeing even now that he has something like 19 percent youth unemployment with more college graduates coming out all the time. So if world companies are moving away from using China as a manufacturing base, if China's own economy is slumping, if you have unemployment and at the same time you are clamping down hard on COVID and grinding manufacturing and service industry to a halt. That's a recipe for disaster. So, yes, the protests were important, but the economic reality is probably even more important.
0: So something we will have to change. What, what do you think we will be seeing changing
2: first? We're going to see a very bumpy policy of really improvisation because China is steering a very delicate path. On the one hand, it has to relax its zero COVID policy because that's clearly not something that's sustainable or reasonable. But on the other hand, it can't afford to have its medical system overwhelmed. Uh, And there's a real danger of that because... Something like uh, I think in the in the over eighty population, only eighty percent of uh, people have been vac- vaccinated, and the Chinese vaccines are not as good as the vaccines that we've had in the West. That's simply a fact. Uh, China really tied its uh, its destiny to domestically made vaccines. It did not buy the RNA vaccines, and they're less potent. And so, even though in the vast Majority of the population, the S people have been vaccinated, but old people have not. And and everyone has been vaccinated by vaccines that are less potent. So there is a real danger of a problem.
0: And why haven't the older people been vaccinated? They were vaccinated
2: first in the West. Yes, the West made uh, old people a priority for obvious reasons. But I think in China, there was a real cultural resistance. Old people don't like vaccines. Old people are very distrustful of Western medicine as opposed to traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, and I, for whatever reason, the the government, which does force many things on its population, felt this was a policy it could not force. And I think For future historians, it'll be fascinating to try to get some insight into what discussions there actually were. But uh, for the Communist Party, that clearly was a step too far to mandate vaccines for older people. Even now, they're putting in a policy to try to speed up vaccines of older people, but it is still not a mandate. And it's, it's very interesting.
0: China is indeed finding itself in a difficult position now because it's becoming clear all the time that it will have to open its borders at some point because of the economy, for example. Do you think Beijing realizes that it may have made a mistake with its approach?
2: Uh, Beijing. Who is Beijing? I think uh, there are certainly economists who think they made a mistake, whether Xi Jinping himself is willing to recognize that he made a mistake, is, I think it's a different question. And I think that's at the root of the dilemma that China has, that a lot of this was the personal policy of the man at the top. And so even if people around him may think, oh, maybe we should have bought some RNA vaccines. Oh, maybe we should have put in a vaccine mandate. Oh, maybe we should have a, have had a more flexible policy from the beginning. This zero-COVID policy is so identified with Xi Jinping, who just got reelected to a, a new term as Communist Party leader, as the supreme thinker of uh, ideology, surrounding himself with a, a politburo of like-minded people of his faction. Uh, I think the top people in Beijing probably are not ready to admit they made a mistake. What they will try to do is modify find a, an improvised way through, but they're never going to say we were wrong.
0: Do you think those top people in, in Beijing have been very concerned by these protests we've been seeing?
2: These were the first protests since really 89 that were widespread, number one, number two, about a single issue, and number three, actually included some calls for Xi Jinping himself to step down or even for the Communist Party uh, to, to step down. That's unprecedented. China has protests all the time, but they tend to be very local protests about pollution or corruption or unpaid wages, and so they're, they're easy to deal with. Here is a one-issue protest that suddenly erupts in a dozen, two dozen, maybe three dozen cities around uh, the country with some very powerful and potent slogans. So I think, yes, people were worried.
0: And just finally, David, that boost in online censorship and surveillance of the population we discussed in the beginning of this interview, when do you think those censors are going to give up? (laughs) Oh. Wheel
2: <laughs> China is not ready to give up on its censorship. There's always censorship of some kind. Sometimes it's stricter, sometimes it's looser. But uh, there w- are always, and there have always, for, since the internet began in China, been very significant limits on what you can say. And I expect those to continue.
0: David Schlesinger there. Thank you very much for joining us here on The Globalist. It is almost 9.12 a.m. in Kiev, 7.12 a.m. here in London. Oil prices have risen today after the G7 Group of Nations and its allies decided to cap the price of Russian oil at $60 a barrel. The move comes into force today and is aimed at putting more pressure on Russia over its war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, France's President Emmanuel Macron has faced widespread criticism after he suggested that the West should consider offering Russia security guarantees If it returns to the negotiating table. For example, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's top aide responded by saying that it is the world that needs security guarantees from Russia, not the other way around. I'm joined by Alex Kokcharov, risk analyst on Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Eurasia at IHS Markets, a provider of information and analytics for governments and financial markets. Welcome to the program, Alex. First of all, how much do you think this oil price cap will
3: hurt Russia? Uh, Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, Well, the proposed uh, $60 um, uh, crude oil uh, cap uh, is currently above the traded price of Russian oil. So the damage will not be significant. Um, It would have an impact if the oil price for Russian oil would increase above the $60 per barrel. And as a result, um, uh, there would be financial repercussions. Uh, But at the moment, uh, it's more of a symbolic gesture and a number of politicians, including uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, uh, have publicly uh, spoken, uh, saying that uh, this price gap should be at a lower level. for instance, $30 per barrel.
0: Why do you think the G7 nations and and allies didn't go further in that? Why did they decide to set that limit to $60? Uh,
3: obviously, uh, uh, I, I was not part of those negotiations, but uh, the most likely objective is uh, to not unbalance the oil market uh, globally too much uh, by introducing uh, a very restrictive measure. Um, we all have seen... Uh, that the oil markets and commodity markets overall uh, have been quite volatile earlier this year and with major economies uh, going into either recession or significant slowdown of economic activity uh, probably the objective is to avoid any Um, uh, 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 any further damage uh, to the economic uh, trends in major economies in the West.
0: Well, let's look at some recent developments when it comes to this conflict then just a few days ago, US President Joe Biden did say that he was prepared to speak with Russia's President Putin if he is ready to look for a way to end this war. And Moscow was quick to reject this offer. Do you think there is any scope for talks now between, say, the US and Russia?
3: Um, There's always a scope for talks. Uh, The problem is that the positions uh, of Russia and the West on how this conflict can end um, look very different. Uh, Russia would be unlikely to agree to uh, withdraw from the areas which it declared as annexed uh, earlier this autumn, uh, and now claims to be part of the Russian territory. Uh, So for Putin, it would not be something that is acceptable. Uh, This clearly would not be acceptable for Ukraine or the West, uh, none of the Western countries have recognized these declared annexations. Uh, so I think the positions um, of both parties at the moment are very difficult to... Um, uh, uh, They're they, they so contrary to each other that it will be very difficult to find any common ground, at least for now. Um, if the Russian forces... Uh, face further problems at the battlefield and would have to withdraw from more territory. Uh, This could change in the future. Uh, But at the moment, I don't see that Russia is genuinely interested in um, ending the conflict. What Russia is clearly interested in, it wants uh, to freeze the uh, current uh, uh, lines of contact in order to be able to regroup, retrain and rearm for a future offensive when its forces are better prepared.
0: The head of the US intelligence has just said that Vladimir Putin has become better informed about the difficulties facing his forces in, in Ukraine. Do you think that could somehow change the course of this war?
3: Um, not necessarily, uh, because while the Russian decision to invade was most probably based on significant miscalculations about, uh, about Ukraine and the West uh, and the... A willingness of Ukrainians to resist um, the fact that Putin is now better informed that the Russian armed forces are not in great shape uh, not in as great shape as he expected them to be um, he would be unlikely to revert the course of action uh, he would be unlikely to to see Ukraine to allow Ukraine to uh, to win at least politically he would he will resist it so while he and i think this is one of the reasons which is driving the russian calls for negotiations which would lead to a ceasefire because russia knows that currently its forces are not in a great shape and they need to be retrained rearmed and better prepared for future battles but i think the overall objective of uh russia uh, causing significant damage to ukraine Uh, occupying at least significant parts of Ukraine, if not all of Ukraine, um, are still uh, parts of Moscow's ambitions.
0: I think it's interesting to to learn that Putin is better informed now about how this war is going, considering that it's been running for over nine months. Do we actually know how much information
3: Putin gets at the moment? We don't. Putin famously is not using the internet. um, So he gets all the Reports which are delivered to him uh, by his um, uh, by the Kremlin officials, so everything has to be printed out in summaries, and um, that's the the issue uh, which probably led to the initial Russian miscalculations because this information is heavily curated, uh, and the objective of officials is to. Please, Putin, rather than to give him um, honest and accurate information. Um, so uh, it's hard. To, it's hard to tell, but he famously doesn't use internet. So uh, all the information he gets is either from the television or from reports from the government officials, uh, which tend to be heavily curated.
0: Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, France's president Macron has been facing criticism after he suggested that the West should consider offering Russia some kind of security guarantees if there are to be some kind of talks around a negotiating table. What are your thoughts about that? Did Macron re- uh, did he did he was he did he get that criticism for a reason? And what does what he said tell us about the unity of the West?
3: Um. I think um, it's it's too early to talk about uh, security guarantees to Russia because the reality is Russia is occupying parts of sovereign territory of three countries in Europe, not just Ukraine, but also Moldova and um, Georgia, and Russia effectively occupies Belarus, where it props up regime of Lukashenko. Um, I think it would only make sense to to talk about security guarantees to russia if russia would give up something in return such as withdrawal of its troops from uh, the sovereign territory of other states or uh, russia um, abandoning its nuclear weapons arsenal Uh, if you if you remember in 1994 the budapest memorandum which was signed by ukraine but also by belarus and um kazakhstan it necessitated transfer of nuclear weapons from these three post-Soviet countries to Russia. And in return, there were security guarantees given to these countries. So um, Russia is secure. Russia is a a country with nuclear weapons. Nobody in their right mind would be attacking uh, Russia, trying to capture its territory. Uh, so I think the uh, the wording by Macron was somewhat unfortunate.
0: Alex Kokcharov thank you very much for your insights today. You are listening to the Globalist on Monocle 24. Still to come in the program Enrico Franceschini reviews the day's papers and Monocle's Alexis self gives us the rundown of Monocle's annual soft power survey.
1: At a time when hard power is being used so aggressively and forcefully to try and achieve a state's aims, we looked again at what the meaning of soft power is and and why actually we're making the case that soft power in the long term and in the short term is the best way for a country to achieve its aims.
0: This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
4: OBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to The Globalist. I am Marcus Hippi. The United Nations fly ambassadors for a meet and greet with the leaders of the Taliban in Kandahar, Afghanistan today to hold what it describes as a direct exchange of views. It marks an opportunity for the UN to press the Taliban leadership to make progress on urgent issues like feeding their people, fixing their economy and educating their children. Lee O'Donnell is a columnist at Foreign Policy and an Australian journalist and author. Earlier, she was the Afghanistan Bureau Chief for AFP and the Associated Press. Welcome to the pro-Kremlin.
4: Hi, Marcus. Thanks
0: for having me. Could you first explain what, what exactly do we know about what will be happening a bit later today? How much is known about the nature of this event?
4: Well, the United Nations office in Kabul hasn't responded to any requests for comment about this meeting that they've organised. But documents that I got hold of confirmed that the invitations have gone out to ambassadors who are resident in Kabul, and that they will be going to Kandahar, the former uh, centre of power under the Taliban last time around, um, today to meet with leaders of the what they call the Ulema Shura, which is the legal council that um, makes decisions about the law based on their interpretation of Islamic Sharia. And people I've spoken to about it say there's really no point in them going unless they're going to be meeting the supreme leader. Haibatullah Akunzada, who is a a very conservative cleric and the man behind making decrees that girls can't go to school, for instance, and that Sharia, his interpretation, their interpretation of Sharia must be applied to all so-called legal complaints. There is no rule of law in Afghanistan. And so that's why we've been seeing in recent weeks a return to public floggings and executions. And I don't think we're very far away from seeing severed hands hanging again in marketplaces. So I'm thinking that the reason that Haibatullah wants to meet the resident ambassadors is because there are factional differences in the Taliban. He's um, at loggerheads with Kabul-based um, uh, uh, Taliban leaders and that there is um, a very serious uh, fight going on between these two factions for, for the real power in Afghanistan at the moment.
0: Since their takeover last year, the Taliban have been isolated from the international community. What will happen today? Does that somehow signal some kind of recognition for the Taliban from the diplomatic circles?
4: Well, I think that um, it's uh, open to question why the UN office in Kabul is brokering this meeting. This is something that the Taliban's foreign affairs um uh, office should be doing, um. But what it indicates is that these rivalries are deeply embedded in the governing structure of the Taliban. And um, now, if the um the United Nations is doing Arkunzada's work for him, it is almost like a de facto recognition that. He is the, the 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 power in the country. It's I don't think that it's Unama's job. It's not their mandate, certainly. But what we have seen over the. Um, or what is it, a year and four months since the Taliban took over in August last year, is um, an impunity. The Taliban don't face any consequences for their actions. Uh, their leaders are sanctioned terrorists. They control global heroin supply and they are basically flouting international norms of governance, for instance, keeping their their population secure and safe, fed, building an economy and allowing children to go to school. So I think it's open to question, what is um, Unama's role? Why are they working for one particular faction of the Taliban governance structure? And is this um, another step on the road to recognition and legitimization of the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan?
0: Aline, how do you feel about all that, considering that you've lived in the country for years and you've been following it so carefully for such a long time?
4: Oh uh, well, uh, I, I you know my personal feeling about it is that it's it's fairly egregious that the international community has allowed uh, Afghanistan to slide into the situation that it's in. Um, people are um, feeding. Well, they're not feeding, they're they're giving their children tranquilizers so that they can sleep through hunger pains. There's very little food. The Himalayan winter is coming and people are facing starvation and there's no work and there's no money. Stuff that does go in um, under the guise of humanitarian aid is siphoned off by the Taliban. So um, I see the international community led by the United States and the United Nations effectively enabling the Taliban with no consequences. And if, uh, personally, I think that it's, you know, we have to look at the difference between right and wrong here. Um, and professionally, I think I probably reflect that in my in my coverage and my reporting. I don't think that it's a matter of um, really being uh, per, I don't think personal stuff comes into it. I think it's a difference between right and wrong. And what the Taliban are doing to 40 million people in Afghanistan comes under the heading of wrong. Can, we, ex- C-
0: can we expect any meaningful outcome from today's meeting?
4: Um, I think the meaningfulness comes for al um Attempt to uh, focus power on Kandahar. When the Taliban were in control of Afghanistan between 1996 and 2001, Kandahar was their capital and it's seen as the spiritual home, is the way the cliche goes, of the Taliban. This is where they emerged in the 1990s during the civil war at the time. And I think that what we'll probably see today, if there is any outcome of it, is a, um, uh, a, an attempt by Arkansada's uh, very conservative faction of the Taliban to realign power to Kandahar. I can't see much more.
0: What do you think the UN's role will be going forward in contrast to foreign governments and charities?
4: Well, what the UN does at the moment is funnel uh, millions, tens of millions of dollars that are delivered to the country every week or two from the United States in cash, purportedly to alleviate the humanitarian suffering. But what happens is that the United Nations then distributes that money through local NGOs that can only operate with the approval of the Taliban. And the Taliban take about 20 to 30 percent of that for themselves. And you also have um, a siphoning off by the United Nations of 30 percent of money that goes to them as a charity. Um, WFP, the World Food Food Programme, for instance, and other UN agencies, their overheads are 30 percent. So... uh, all I see really is um, the money that is being sent to Afghanistan that is supposed to be alleviating the suffering that is being exacerbated by the Taliban going to overheads and to the people who are causing the suffering in the first place.
0: Leon O'Donnell there, thank you very much for joining us today. It is 7.31am here in London. Here is what else we're keeping an eye on today. Belgium begins proceedings today in its largest ever trial to determine the 10 men played a part in the Islamist suicide bombings in Brussels in 2016 that killed 32 people. The trial is expected to last seven months and is estimated to cost at least 35 million euros. Donald Trump has been condemned by the White House after he called for the termination of the US Constitution. He made the comments on social media while repeating his false claim. That he won the 2020 presidential election. Trump announced his third presidential bid last month. And the New Zealand government has said it will launch a public inquiry into the country's handling of the COVID 19 pandemic so future governments could learn from the experience. The Royal Commission will look at the overall response, including economic measures. The review is expected to be concluded in mid 2024. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned you Earlier this year, Finland's Ministry for Foreign Affairs devised a new role to promote Finnish culture around the world. The first ever position of ambassador for culture and creative industries was awarded to Paula Parviainen, former ambassador to Singapore. She joined Monocle's Tom Webb in Midori House in London to explain Finland's global cultural appeal, why the country is the home of Christmas and what is on her agenda for 2023.
5: Food, education, digitalisation the care for the elderly. All of these were topics that were, were all the time, like on the agenda. And we try to find new markets, especially the Finnish food industry is also internationalizing very fast now. And we have a lot of sort of health-based food. And then, of course, like nature, which is a big inspiration for both our arts, but also for our foodstuffs. Finland is a very pure country, you know, like the pure nature. So you can buy food products that are developed from the pure forest or the berries, the, the lakes, all of this, the mushrooms, the fish. So it's all something that has... And the alcohol drinks as well. So so they they are finding new markets, interesting markets.
6: So looking at these kind of smallish Finnish brands, what, what does it take to get the message across to an international stage? You mentioned purity, for example. How does Finland prove itself to be much more than Marimekko, Etela, Moomins and Santa Claus?
5: Yeah, well, Finland is known for those big brands. But we would like to sort of bring in also the new forms, because this has all laid the basis, you know, like Sibelius for the music, Alvar Aalto, Eliel Saarinen, Eero Saarinen for architecture, design, Marimekko, all of these. But there is so much more to that. And they have, of course, served as inspiration to Finnish artists and to Finnish creative producers, uh, designers, and all of that. And this is what, in my role, I want to also to give tools for our embassies to tell the story about the modern Finland, you know, like how we have developed from this basis that we have and how we are also like very digitalized nowadays. So that also gives us the scaling opportunity. So we can do a lot of like in the gaming industry, it's very, you know, there's no borders to that. And that goes for many other forms as well. So we would like to show that we are much more, we have a good basis for that. We have a good education and we want to support the creative industries and the arts.
6: So we're now in the Christmas period. A lot of people will be buying some of these Finnish brands. Can you paint a picture of Christmas in Finland beyond the stereotypes? What people don't know about Christmas in Finland who haven't been there before?
5: Well, luckily, a lot of British people come to Finland. And it was really, it's a great Christmas destination also for many Asians. And Lapland is really magical land for christmas you know the white christmas is guaranteed and that's the home of the santa claus the one and only santa claus in the world is in rovaniemi these are clichés but they are something that there are so many people who haven't yet seen it for real and uh, the aurora borealis so of course like all of these are are more the, the known side but for every finnish family you know uh, the sauna is part of their christmas eve or the night before christmas and uh, giving presents there are some traditional foods i wouldn't start exporting those foods because they come from our history like when we were a poor rural country but they are important for us and then of course like the you know seeing your family and and uh, and being close to your loved ones so i think that's a universal value and very dear to us as well
6: Well, I have to mention the sauna because Monocle's Andrew Muller was there in the Finnish Embassy interviewing the ambassador to the UK. In the embassy's own sauna, have you seen it? Have you used it?
5: We just came from there. <laughs> not that we would have taken the real sauna now, like the with the heated sauna, but it's a nice. It's a very original Finnish sauna. You know, it's like a family sauna. It's not like one that you have in the big sort of representational places. It's it's sort of a, it gives you a very sort of real authentic feeling of being in Finland.
6: And you know it's authentic because it's an approved Finnish sauna, is that right? Yes,
5: yes. And when you go there, you get a sauna diploma. And you can really, and then you have the finished produce, you know, like we have a lot of, like I said, the nature is a big inspiration also for our cosmetics industry. So now there's a lot of these ecological marks that also have like using our berries and, and using our, our sort of forest products. So you can really like get a glimpse of that. But then please make another trip to Finland and try a smoke sauna, which is the original way of doing a sauna. You know, like the it's a black and it smells smoke and then a dip in the ocean in the winter. Uh, that's a real, that's mm. a real experience.
6: So at the end of the year, we're going into 2023. What should people around the world keep an eye out for in the future coming out of Finland?
5: Well, we certainly hope that they will be peace in our part of the world so this is our big wish for next for next year and then you know like we need we need uh, the more open world again of course, like the sustainability is one of the big values for us, the green. So like you probably be more sustainable in your travel planning and you choose your destinations, not for quick trips, but for real experiences that gives you something for your own well-being. And But next year we'll have a lot of interesting events in finland we have the helsinki biennale which is opening on an island in the middle of the helsinki city in june and we have the festivals like we the finland is really we have an abundance of music festivals of everything we have a kissing festival we have like every every possible form of festival and and those are really something that we would like to see more foreign tourism as well and to try the authentic sauna, to try a forest experience and to see what Finland can really offer.
0: Finland's ambassador for culture and creative industries, Paula Parvia, and they're in discussion with Monocle's Tom Webb. You are with Monocle24.
5: Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15.
0: It is 16.39 in Tokyo, 8.39 a.m. in Rome. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me on the line is Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for the Italian daily newspaper La Repubblica. Good morning, Enrico. Good morning, Marcus. Shall we start by looking at, 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 at what, what papers are writing about what is happening in Iran? There have been conflicting reports of the country possibly abolishing morality, police. Do we get a better picture of what may be happening there?
7: Well, um, it's a it's a confused picture, but something is happening. Let's say it's, so. Uh, the country's uh, top uh, prosecutor, Mohamed Montazeri, during a press conference, was asked why the morality police is not seen around uh, uh, any longer. In the last uh, few days, the morality police are the officials who um, look after the strict uh, dressing codes for women that have aroused so much protest uh, in Iran uh, with uh, hundreds of deaths, thousands of demonstrators in the streets all over the country in the past few months. Now, he, he gave a, a surprising answer. He said uh, that uh, the morality police has nothing to do with the judiciary, which he, of which is the, the the boss, let's say. And it, it was uh, set up by the Interior Ministry and it can be, or it has been, shut up but shut down by the the same uh, authorities so this uh, brought a lot of medias around the world in the Western media to in the Western world to say that uh, the morality police is uh, closed this is the end big uh, uh, backtrack by the Italian Iranian authorities but it's not exactly like that uh, Iranian medias uh, said that the the, the the morality police has not actually been disbanded. Uh, other observers uh, noticed that uh, the morality police is not a police unit, it's a program basically, so it's not that you can close it without changing the laws. Uh, but still, uh, it's possible that under pressure from uh, the protest of the past few months, uh, there is at least a debate inside the Iranian regime. The same uh, official, Montazeri, the top prosecutor also said that someone in parliament is starting to look uh, at aspects of the law uh, that uh, um, uh, forces women to cover their, their heads. And then so uh, it's not clear what will happen. But as I said, something is happening. And the comment made by uh, some of the protesters is that. Uh, At this point, the the laws, the morality police covering the head, it's not what uh, they're looking for. It's not enough. They want a regime change in Iran. They want democracy.
0: It looks like something will have to change in that country in any case. Let's continue now with, with another story you have spotted. This is something that is covered, for example, the Greek daily newspaper Tanea. An agreement to return the Parthenon sculptures or Elgin marbles, as they're also known, is supposedly at an advanced
7: stage. Well, yes, according to the Greek newspaper, 90% of an agreement is in place for the British Museum to return this part of the Parthenon sculptures, uh, one of the most important monuments in in the world, overlooking the city of Athens, a symbol of Western uh, civilization that was uh, brought to Britain in uh, 1816 by Lord Elgin, from which the name Elgin Marbles uh, uh, has uh, has, has come. Um, there are no official confirmation of this. Uh, there are only um, what the newspaper reports that uh, what is significant perhaps is that the new chair of the British Museum is the former uh, Chancellor, Chancellor of the checker, uh, George Osborne, and it seems he has met uh, several times with the uh, Uh, Prime Minister of Greece, with the foreign minister, with other officials. And uh, uh, the British Museum has said that they are trying to find... uh, an agreement that will make everybody happy about this. Um, there has also been some movement, uh, some similar movement in other fields, another museum, uh, British Museum, uh, the Orneman Museum and Garden, and signed an agreement to return 72 items of their collection, the so-called Benin Bronze Uh, banning bronzes to Nigeria Uh, is something happening here too perhaps we don't know discussions are going on of course it's a big issue because if uh, um, not only for Britain and and Greece but if uh, the British Museum returns this item this important item uh, uh, other museums around the world could have precious uh, for returning art that has been basically taken away or stolen I can think of uh, being Italian as uh, the Mona Lisa sitting in the um, um, uh, Louvre in Paris for a a long time now, since the time of Napoleon. So uh, we'll see you.
0: It's, it's, it remains to be seen what happens in that front, but it's certainly a big discussion that's been going on for quite some time. One more story, and this is actually from your newspaper, from La República, how Honduras and Salvador are suspending certain constitutional rights to fight criminal gangs. Tell us more about that.
7: Well, yes, uh, this is about the criminal gangs that dominate several uh, Central American countries. I was based there for a few months, uh, many years ago, and the situation has not changed at the, has actually become worse, They are a force uh, of government, a para-government in, in a certain sense. In, it seems that in Honduras, they, the, the fees that they ask for protection from businesses uh, amount to three percent of the of the national product of the country, and uh, and uh, so. Uh, the government has taken an extreme measure to suspend the, for a period all the constitutional um, protection and liberties, uh, and uh, and they, they want to, to break these criminal gangs that are made of thousands and thousands of people, very heavily harmed. Something similar is happening also in uh, El Salvador and other Central American countries, and uh, right a few minutes ago, looking at newspaper, I saw a report that even in, in Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti, they have uh, a similar situation with a war between gangs that uh, has paralyzed the, uh, the government. Uh, it's not clear. Uh, how this uh, will happen, uh, if this will will bring uh, a suspension of uh, other freedoms uh, in, in Honduras, uh, but certainly something must be done.
0: Absolutely. Enrico Franceschini there thank you very much for joining us here on the Globalist today.
7: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over
6: 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
8: To find out how we could help you,
7: contact us at ubs.com.
0: You are listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. It's time to talk fashion news with luxury brand consultant, content strategist, editor, and writer Rebecca Tay. Good morning.
8: Hi, Marcus, how are you?
0: Good, thank you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Shall we start with fairly big news from the Belgian fashion industry?
8: Yes, yes, of course. So, and the Meester, I think you're talking about. Uh, she was one of the original Belgian designers. Um, and she hasn't actually been in her label for about 10 years now, but they've announced a new creative director, um, Ludovic de Cernin. Um, so he's only 27. He's also Belgian, but he has been in Paris for the last few years working at Saint Laurent, and he has spent some years at Bellman. So it's quite exciting. We haven't seen some news from these designers for a while.
0: How much excitement is there at the moment?
8: I think it's... Um Quite interesting because there's been a lot of movement. You know, the big houses have all had big announcements in the last few weeks. Uh, Gucci, as we know, obviously Alessandro Michele is leaving. Raf Simons um, is stepping down from his own label. So I think it's nice to see something coming from one of the smaller, a little bit more niche labels. Um, And I think people are interested in seeing what Ludovic will do as well.
0: Well, let's continue with another, with, with another interesting story from the world of fashion. It's been 10 years since the first collaboration between Louis Vuitton and the artist Yayoi Kusama. And now they are releasing a second collection marking the occasion with a big pop-up in Tokyo.
8: Yes, that's right. So I think, you know, we all know Yayoi Kusama for her p- polka dots. Even if you don't know who she is or follow her art, you would recognize the polka dots. We've seen exhibitions at the Tate, um, at various exhi- at various galleries and museums around the world. Um, and so the collection doesn't actually launch until January. It won't be for sale until then. Um, but we are starting to see some exciting kind of installations. A lot of them are sort of digital and AI generated. There's this quite interesting billboard in Tokyo where... Um, it kind of comes to life and you see Yayoi's how, um you see her you see her face sort of sorry pop out from the billboard um, and i think it's interesting as well because she is 93 so you know she is um N- you know, not a spring chicken. She is producing quite a lot of work still, but I think there's a lot of kind of buzz that this could be one of her potentially last collaborations, especially in the fashion space.
0: And do you think there was a good uh, business incentive for Louis Vuitton to launch this collaboration again? How successful was the first one a decade ago?
8: Oh, I think all of Louis Vuitton's collaborations seem to sell out very quickly. So whether it's Supreme and their sort of red suitcases, yeah. um, or the Yayoi Kusama. Um, collaboration 10 years ago. I think they all sell out very, very quickly. I don't think they've had one that hasn't been successful. Um, And also the collaborations with artists has been something that the house has been doing for um, since it started originally, even hundreds of years ago. So I think it's good for them to continue doing these with different artists who, you know, wouldn't necessarily be seen as kind of the first choice potentially for Louis Vuitton.
0: Well, let's talk about another collaboration. Very interesting, this one as well. Stella McCartney has issued a second collaboration with the Japanese designer Yoshito Monara.
8: Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's another Japanese designer. I was looking at this. Um, And as you said, it's a second collaboration. So Yoshitomo Nara, another living artist at the moment, uh, male. um, And he's kind of known for his sort of, they almost look like cartoon characters, um, but he often pairs them with sayings or slogans that are a little bit more, a little bit cheeky. There's one that says, don't waste another day. There's one that says, stop the bombs. Um, And so they're kind of sinister looking, these children. They have very big eyes. They often have quite... Um, oblong shaped heads I suppose and so now we're seeing these characters pop up on some uh, Stella McCartney sweaters, jumpers, t-shirts that kind of thing.
0: And, And how excited are you yourself about what you've been seeing so far about this collection?
8: I mean, I quite like Yoshitomo Nora. I've um, have a few sort of just uh, prints, nothing original, of course, but um, I'm a fan of his art, so I quite like this collaboration. It is also um, unisex, so whether or not you're male, female, non-binary, you know, there's pieces that are for everybody, and it's just a light-hearted kind of an approach to fashion. Which um, I think, going back to the Louis Vuitton um, Yayoi yeah, Kusama one, I think everyone is still very much in the mood for playful. Uh, a bit of playfulness, a bit of joy, especially after years of being cooped up and not seeing so much in fashion in that sense.
0: And what do you think is is the point of this kind of a collaboration? How much does that, that boost the attention Stella McCartney's, for example, getting when she's doing these collaborations?
8: Yeah, you know, collaborations have very much been about kind of reaching a different audience or at least just giving a brand another point of difference and another reason to be written about or spoken about in the press, obviously, as we're doing right now. Um, Stella McCartney did recently launch a beauty brand of her own, so that has so the brand itself has already been in the news in the last few months. Uh, but without this, there wouldn't be as much to talk about. You know, there's just a you know the gift collection, there's holiday pieces out there at the moment to buy. Um, but this gives a particular point of view that just puts it on. I think news editors and puts it on headlines, so it makes it relevant again. Um, and again, it's for a different audience. You know, if you're not necessarily a Stella McCartney customer, because you find the customer you find the pieces a bit too. Serious, or maybe not for you. This is another approach that helps um, potentially make the brand more relatable to you.
0: Absolutely, Rebecca Tay. There, thank you very much for joining us. You are with the Globalist. You are listening to The Globalist on Monocle24. It's that time of the year again. The results of our annual soft power survey are out in the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. Monocle's foreign editor Alexis Self joins me in the studio to tell us more about what we have on those pages of the new magazine. Alex, welcome to the program. Shall we start with very basics first of all? How do you define soft power, and why does that matter in twenty twenty three or twenty two? Well, we put this survey together every year, so we we
1: think soft power is a very important thing. I would define soft power as, I suppose, you can define it in opposition to hard power. Hard power is the use of force, coercion, military means to achieve your state's aims and soft powers is, is the things that maybe aren't so tangible but we believe are still incredibly effective you know cooperation pushing for peace diplomacy economic success business success cultural success you know whether or not a country has a successful film or music industry or, or whether or not people just like to eat
0: its food So how have you done it then? Obviously, you haven't been working on this project alone, but how do you look at what? how many countries are there in the world? Almost 200. How do you try to put them in some kind of an order? Well, there is a science to it. We look at, we have a number of metrics, stuff
1: like how many embassies a country has abroad, how large its foreign aid budget is, how much money it gives to the Green Climate Fund, but also stuff that perhaps less rich countries might also be successful at when I talked about the cultural aspects. So, you know, stuff like how many foreign language Oscar movies countries, directors or producers have won, how many UNESCO World Heritage sites it has, how many Michelin stars. That's the scientific part. So we look at which countries score highly on those metrics. And then, you know, there's a bit of subjectivity and, and a bit of a discussion among Monaco's senior editors, which countries do we think have done particularly well this year at getting their brand out there and and have had a good year in terms of those things I was talking about, those soft power fundamentals, you know, business success and, and, you know, cooperation and pushing for peace.
0: Lex, obviously, 2022 hasn't been the easiest of years. We've seen a global pandemic, economic instability across the world, and also a war in Europe. How have these events affected this list? Well, you know, we went back to
1: basics, actually. 2022 would seem to be the year that hard power returned in a big way, in Europe at least. Nobody thought that a kind of conventional land war between two big armies would happen again in Europe after the end of the Cold War. And on the 24th of February, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it did. But at a time when hard power is being used so aggressively and forcefully to try and achieve a state's aims, I suppose you know, we looked again at what the meaning of soft power is and and why actually we're making the case that soft power in the long term and in the short term is the best way for a country to achieve its
0: aims. So we should obviously look at which countries have have done well. and, And one thing I did notice from there that probably partly thanks to whatever has been happening in this year, we see Ukraine in the list, for example. This is Ukraine's first
1: time in our list. And, you know, Again, when we look at the difference between hard power and soft power, we see that Ukraine has done incredibly well with its hard power this year. You know, nobody thought the Ukrainian army would be able to stand up to the Russians and actually not just hold them back, but push them back. But on top of that, you know, you can have effective hard power, but without the kind of bedrock of soft power that Ukraine has really cultivated this year through Zelensky, his kind of personality and the effective use of social media to conduct the war. But other people, you know, Vitaly Klitschko, who already was a soft power icon of Ukraine, has become a kind of talisman for the city of Kiev, which he's the mayor of. Elena Zelenska, who's the first lady, her job as a first lady or any first lady is a kind of soft power figure, right? You know, you see in the US, first ladies often support causes that are close to their hearts and people like Betty Ford with drug rehabilitation or Michelle Obama with nutritious eating Elena Zelenska has become a real kind of representative of especially Ukrainian women who aren't fighting in huge numbers on the front line but are obviously sustaining the war effort and you know Elena Zelenska was in London where we are the other day to go to a summit to end violence against women that's one thing that Ukraine has done incredibly well in terms of soft power. And
0: that's why it features in, in the list this year. It's a fascinating list and our listeners can find the whole top 20 from the upcoming December-January edition of Monocle magazine. And it's also worth mentioning that our listeners get 15% off if they use the code RADIO15 if they subscribe to the magazine on Monocle's website. Alexis Self, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Christy O'Grady, Laura Kramer, Tom Webb and Sophie Monahan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, there is more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London. And this programme, The Globalist, returns at the same time tomorrow. I am Markus Hippin. Thanks for tuning in.